Blog Radio. Hello, and welcome to the APTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast discussing current practices in concussion management. My name is Nikki DeSalvio. I'm a third-year DPT student at the University of Pittsburgh, and I am joined today by two experts in the field of concussion management, Dr. Ann Muka and Dr. Karen Scott. Ann Muka is a coordinator of vestibular rehabilitation for the UPMC Centers for Rehab Services and UPMC Sports Concussion Clinic in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The UPMC Sports Concussion Clinic is a large multidisciplinary outpatient program in which neuropsychologists, physical therapists, physicians, athletic trainers, and other healthcare providers work collaboratively. More than 25 physical therapists work in the program in various sites throughout Western Pennsylvania. Dr. Muka is a full-time clinician and is also actively involved in clinical research related to the evaluation and management of patients following concussion. She served as a member of the CDC panel of experts to develop clinical guidelines for diagnosis and management of mild traumatic brain injury among children and adolescents. Dr. Muka has been treating individuals with neurologic conditions for over 20 years and is a board-certified clinical specialist in neurological physical therapy. She also has her advanced degree in vestibular rehabilitation. She has received advanced certification in vestibular rehabilitation. She has received her bachelor's in advanced master's degree in physical therapy from the University of Pittsburgh and her doctor of physical therapy degree from Temple University. Dr. Muka lectures nationally and internationally on topics related to concussion and is an adjunct faculty member in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome, Dr. Muka. Thanks, Nikki. Dr. Karen Scott serves as a faculty member of the Orthopedic and Neurological Residency Program at James A. Haley Veterans Hospital in Tampa, Florida. She has been working in the field of vestibular and balance rehabilitation and sports and orthopedics since 2000. This diversity in her clinical experience makes her well-suited to manage complex concussion or mild TBI population. She currently works in the post-deployment mild TBI program as well as an outpatient vestibular clinic. Dr. Scott serves as a consultant throughout the hospital system to assist the management of dizzy clientele. She has successfully completed all four APTA-sponsored vestibular clinical competencies and holds a leadership role within the APTA neurology section vestibular special interest group. She is a nationally nominated member of the Vestibular Rehabilitation Clinical Practice Guideline Task Force. Dr. Scott holds an adjunct faculty position at University of South Florida and lectures nationally on the topic of TBI and concussion management. Her current research includes cervical, visual, auditory, vestibular dysfunction associated with traumatic brain injury, assessment, and interventions. Welcome, Dr. Scott. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you both for joining me today. So this podcast is an update to a previously recorded podcast, and today we're going to discuss recent advances in the field and current practices in managing patients post-concussion. So we'll start. Um, Dr. Scott, if you can answer by Telling us any changes with the concussion consensus statement in Berlin that was released in October of 2016. Um, um, yes, I, yeah, think I think there was a, there huge, was a huge. Hang on, I'm getting a little on, feedback, a here. feedback here. So the differences in the consensus statement from Berlin was. Uh, compared to the Zurich guidelines, I had the opportunity of going to Berlin, and the one of the biggest differences was the format. They allowed for the public and researchers this year to actually participate and interact with the panelists as they presented 12 different systematic reviews and I believe over 60,000 
pieces of literature were reviewed. Each, the consensus statement this year had 12 different questions and a systematic review addressing each question. And they were all surrounding sports-related concussion. And I think that's really important for the listeners to know that the, this is only in regards to sports-related concussions. They excluded everything else. So any research that included um, non-athletes or civilians, blasts, they were all excluded from this review. But they identified um, how to recognize, you know, when we should remove athletes, how to reevaluate. They, um, for the first time ever, actually mentioned rehabilitation and named physical therapists in the statement and the guideline in the published paper instead of the Zurich guidelines, which just mentioned exercise, general exercise. Um, they also mentioned the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and now we have diagnostic markers. They did return to sport, return to play guidelines. They included return to learn guidelines, which were not in the Zurich statement. But I think as a physical therapist, the overwhelming message that, that I took home, my take home from this, was the physical symptom management after a concussion is really rising to the surface in the field of sports-related concussion, and that is our area of vestibular, visual, cervical, and autonomic system examination as it pertains to physical therapists. Um, and I think that's really important for us as a profession to know that these physical symptom sequelae are, are mentioned. The other thing is in the um, Berlin statement, they realized that neuropsychological testing, which is previously thought to be kind of the cornerstone of sports-related concussions, that that is important and it should be definitely part of a concussion management team, but they're not exclusionary in making those return-to-play decisions as they had been in the past. So I think those are some of the big changes, um, along with others, that I noticed from the Berlin to the Zurich guidelines or vice versa. I think, um, and Karen, maybe you can comment on this because, you know, you were there, but um, the, the thing that I take away also that I think was positive from the new statement um, is that I think that there's even um, a little stronger language as it relates to um, rest and how much rest um, is appropriate following um, a concussion, uh, where it, it really um, tried to... Um, to kind of say that beyond, you know, the first couple of days, there's probably not great evidence that rest is the best treatment. And I, I it was, it was good to, to see that in print um, boldly. Uh, so I think that that, um, and maybe you can speak to whether that was uh, something that was emphasized at all at the conference. Right. So I think that's a really good point that you bring up is the Zurich guidelines actually had rest as a stage in the return to play guidelines. Right. And what happened is, is, you know, the athlete would enter into stage one, which was rest and they would rest for the 24 hours. And then they would go into stage two, which is light activity with the goal of increasing your heart rate. And 
what was happening is the athletes were in this conundrum. As soon as they began that light activity, they would become symptomatic. And as per the Zurich guidelines, they would have to return to the prior stage, which was rest, rest for 24 hours, and then go to the next stage. So it was like this constant back and forth between activity and rest, and they could never break out. So in the new one, they actually addressed that by removing rest and saying, 24 to 48 hours of rest, followed by entrance into stage one of return to the plane. I think, though, you know, and you alluded to, um, in general, this is the first time that they've even mentioned physical therapy and and treatment. And and while we're moving in that way, I think that there's definitely, um, we need to keep moving forward in, um, in uh, establishing what treatment of concussion is. Um, and, and if we rely on the statement to give us full guidance on that, we're, we're not going to have enough because even though it mentioned that, that we can um, start to think about treatment, it isn't, there isn't much um, more than that. So um, I think that while the, the guidelines are, are, are helpful, they're a starting point, I think that um, we also have to be careful about not over-interpreting them because just like you said, that review process is so so stringent. There's, you know, it's so systematic and, and there isn't perfect literature out there. So, um, you know, you can't support things when there's not great literature, but, but we know that um, we know that um, there's, there's probably a lot more on the treatment side that, that's to come. Yeah, I agree. The I was while I understand how they needed to address the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the systematic reviews, I think there's a huge body of evidence that they miss because of that stringent criteria. Agreed. Um, you know, there's lots of research out there that says more specifics as it relates to our treatment as a physical therapist, exercise guidelines, and um, things of that nature that weren't mentioned. But I really believe that it has to do with the fact that this, some of this good research had non-athletes included in it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it was completely excluded. And, and, you know, and, and of course, you know, looking at athletes is kind of the laboratory for studying concussion, but, you know, the physical therapists that are out there listening to this realize that, you know, unless you work in a very specific clinic, most of the patients you see with concussion are not athletes. You know, we're all seeing, I work in a sport concussion clinic and half of my population is still not athletes. So I think most of us get frustrated by the fact that we only talk about athletes and, and concussion and, and we're not really making those extrapolations to the general population that can easily, um, you know, easily, I think pretty easily be made or readily be made. But um, again, this is, this is all the work that we all have to do to, uh, to, to show, you know, how, you know, how this uh, is evolving in different populations as well. Yeah, I complete. I completely agree. I think my patient population, while I have a, a large population of active duty, special operations, special forces, who almost kind of mimic an elite athlete type of behavior and presentation, um, I also have individuals who have just gotten bonked on the head from a car accident 
or elderly individuals who fall down the stairs and break a hip, you know, they may meet the criteria for sustaining a concussion from the fall downstairs. And I think a lot of clinicians in the country and around the world, that's what's coming into their clinic. Right. Great. So you both kind of talked about um, the role of rest and how it used to be um, strictly uh, regulated and now it's turning towards rest first and then start PT and start the return to play. Uh, Dr. Meek, I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit more about some return to play protocols and what it would take to get an athlete back on the field. Well, I think that, um, you know, the general consensus about return to play is, especially when you're talking about return to um, high risk play. So we're talking about contact sports or collision sports or, or activities where there's significant risk of, of head injury. Um, we're looking for those athletes to be um, not only symptom-free at rest, they need to be symptom-free after they've um, had physical exertion so that after they've returned to a level of physical and cognitive exertion, they need to continue to be symptom-free. Um, and then uh, I think that what we have to establish is that they're normal in their cognitive function, their vestibular, oculomotor, um, all central nervous system function um, both before and then after they've they've been returned after they've been um, they've they've um, started back to full like cognitive and and uh, physical exertion as well. So that's kind of what we specifically say. Um, I think it takes the 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 consensus guidelines and we kind of just uh, we 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 put a little more substance into it. But that's kind of our criteria, which is based upon the international consensus statements. And Dr. Scott, is there anything that you would um, do for your non-athlete population to determine if they're ready to return to work or criteria that you guys use as well? Well, I think um, we go along the same guidelines as they need to be symptom-free, not only at rest, but during all of their activities. So that includes the office worker who goes back to work on their computer and starts having a headache as soon as they start typing and looking and, and looking on the computer or answering the phone or, you know, whatever they're doing in their daily, if they're having symptoms and symptoms could be a headache, then, you know, are they ready? Um, or do they need to kind of grade their activity or take a step back from their work? So I think that not being symptom free, not only after exertion, but after cognitive activities and stressors. And I think it's important to realize that the um, the individual may may be symptom free and their physical recovery appears to be well, but there's lots of evidence out there that shows that their biological recovery, their neurobiological or neurophysiological recovery may not exactly match their symptomatic complaint. And I think that's important to consider when you're talking about individuals going back, especially into high-risk activities, high-risk collision sports, or return to duty. Um, that's a really good point. Uh, I, I think that um, I think that that's the first 
thing that, that we have to consider when we talk about return to activity is, is what activity are we talking about patients going back to? And I don't even think it's as important to determine or to designate whether somebody's going back to sport versus non-sport. I think it's about the risk of the activity that they're going back to, because just like you said, Dr. Scott, that um, your military service members who are, you know, out and, and doing things that are, are um, almost like an elite athlete, there is a certain level that should be equal to a football player or a hockey player or somebody or a soccer player that their level or uh, the same thing, law enforcement, uh, police officers, firefighters, anybody that, that is in that kind of high risk category, I think needs to be treated the same with um, regard to vetting them for return to those activities because there's risk for additional head injury in those activities. And we know about that, you know, the way we manage concussion and why we manage it the way we do is because we're trying to protect the brain from cumulative trauma. Now, return to activity in patients who are, we're not returning them to high risk. I feel like that's a whole other area and, and, Karen and I may differ a little bit in, in how we think about this, because when we're returning, um, um, even maybe um, kids who are golfers or tennis players or who run track and there's really, there's exertion, but it's not contact related, or like you said, office workers or things of that nature, there's not the same risk that is involved in um, returning somebody to those activities. There could be symptoms as you know, Karen alluded to, um, but there isn't the same um, risk. So on our end, we're definitely um, a little less, we're much more conservative with patients who are going back to activities that there is um, additional risk of head injury, but we're much more um, liberal in returning to activities um, of daily life um, in which there isn't risk and we will allow symptoms. Um, we think in some cases you need to you're going to have symptoms and part of the process of recovery is getting through those symptoms and figuring out how to um, to uh, habituate through those. So that may be a slight um, diversion uh, or a, a slight difference um, and this is kind of where we are in the field. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that, um, Dr. Mika, on certain levels, depending on, I think, maybe the acuity of the, of the event. Um, because if we are, you know, if we have somebody who is very acute and, you know, within, let's say, a week of the concussion, we don't want them to go hide in a dark room with a cover over their eyes, like, and have somebody watching over them and don't let them sleep and wake them up just in case they you know, might never wake up. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's not the, 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 the idea in concussion management as it was, you know, 20 years ago or even probably even longer than that. <laughs> but I do agree with you that, you know, once we pass the normal expected recovery rate for average adult or child or adolescent, um, I do agree. We don't want to, you know, hinder them. We want to kind of force them with, with, you know, nice kid gloves a little bit, force them back into their activities and their workload and, and get a little symptomatic, like you said. But again, I think it really depends on where they are in their, in the spectrum of recovery. Yeah, I would agree. 
I find, um, and, and again, this is anecdotal at this point, but um, we have to be careful um, in patients. You know, this is still it's a mild brain injury, but we have to be careful and mindful about um, when we, though, really alter patients and their their normal schedules and routines and um, completely removing them from normal activities. You might see this, too, um, Dr. Scott, is that when, um, you know, when we're too um, liberal with the um, you know the the initial phases of of trying to to give people uh, an initial time of um, allowing their their concussion to you know kind of rest a, a day or two. If we if we apply that too liberally and you know extend that into a week, two weeks, three weeks, and, and we start getting patients out of their normal routines, their normal activities, they start having other issues that are related to withdrawal from their normal activities. You start to see some reactive depressions. You start to see kids that aren't social the way they normally are. They're, people are removed from their, you know, from their normal activities. They're out of their work routine. They're out of, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, I think that, that um, having, trying to keep somewhat of a routine that is as similar to um, what's normal for patients is pretty important. It, as early as possible and and even if it isn't full activity it still kind of keeps that framework of of um you know school or work um with the appropriate amount of breaks or accommodations that allows them to be successful yeah most definitely and actually interesting that you mentioned that because that was a point of conversation during the um consensus statement when we met and everybody met in Berlin, it was brought about that, you know, when we see individuals who are post-concussion uh, or mild TBI and they're three, four months out and they're still having symptoms or they're depressed, the researchers and panelists really recognize that those may not be from the primary injury, but rather a result of the secondary effects of the patients not doing their normal routine. So for instance, uh, I think the best example is a, a child um, athlete, let's say, um, or maybe even just recreational sports. And they, they have a hit to the head and the doctor tells them, the emergency room physician says, you know, don't do anything, no school, no work, no no activity, no iPad, no, no, none of this, then the, then the child gets disconnected and then they can't hang out with their friends and they can't do their sports activities and they can't even get on their iPads. And then what we have is a secondary effect of depression, anxiety, mental health distressors, that kind of thing that arise from that, that weren't from the concussion per se, but moreover from the secondary effects of the concussion. So, from the quote-unquote treatment of the correct. concussion, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, we see um, in our clinic, um, at, I see at least a dozen patients every week um, who are, you know, from different areas. Some are from our local area. Some are from out of our area, out of the state, out of the region, sometimes even out of the country, um, who've exactly, who have been, um, really dysregulated, and and that's the source of their ongoing problems. Not even though the concussion might have been the initial trigger, 
it was the management and allowing um, their 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 life to change that that really was is the thing that's sustaining the problem, and um, it, it's amazing how. Um, renormalizing activity um, is powerful. Uh, so, and I would argue that it doesn't even have to be at four months. I think it can be at four days sometimes, um, depending on the nature of the person, how important certain things are to them and, and the loss of those things are. So uh, we have to be very, very careful about that. And I think as PTs, you know, it's intuitive for us to want to have people stay engaged. So that's why it was so exciting to me to hear that we're starting to um, relax this idea of rest. Um, it's just not necessarily a healthy thing um, for too long for anybody. <clears throat> yeah, and totally. And Dr. Mika, you um, mentioned um, seeing some patients probably four days or four months after. Uh, I was wondering, is there a certain criteria for uh, individuals who have suffered a concussion to actually be referred to physical therapy? Um, is everybody referred with concussion or are there certain criteria that need to be met before they would recommend physical therapy? No, no. And then, uh, um, I think that, um, that this is where you really have to have, um, the right evaluative process um, when when whoever is starting to that process of seeing a patient um, looking at symptoms and do they fit areas where physical therapists should be involved there are a lot of areas where certain symptoms would trigger referral to therapists but not everybody has those symptoms so if somebody's having cervical issues, if somebody's having balance or vestibular issues, or perhaps visual issues, um, those are all reasons for a physical therapist to be involved. But there are cases where patients don't have those types of symptoms or objective findings. And then, no, PTs really aren't, um, you know, it would be kind of um, a waste of time. So not all concussions should be treated the same. And that's probably a big part of the work we have to do is figure out, well, how do concussions present differently? And, you know, how do we treat those in efficacious ways? Um, but it is not a one size fits all approach. Uh, and that's, I think that's an exciting thing for us to consider um, because, uh, we certainly have a role in certain concussion presentations. We should really be the primary, um, you know, interventionists in those cases. But in others, we really should um, should step aside. Yeah, Dr. Mika, I can. I can. Go ahead, Dr. Scott. I was just um, I was just in agreement, and our management. Although we see we see patients a little bit more chronically, um, but our management is much the same. The physiatrist goes by symptom management and then pairs the symptom with the appropriate um, provider on the interdisciplinary team uh, as a referral source. So I think um, similarly, our program sounds very similar to yours in that way. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, we see patients um, who are very acute, and then we see patients who are very chronic, and then everything in between. So, um, it it does um, it does help to kind of uh, 
identify the differences that you see in early intervention versus late intervention. And I think, Nikki, you might, I don't know if you actually asked that question as well as the timing of intervention. Um, I know you yeah, said should therapists be involved, but, um, you know, we, we really we really don't know um, the timing for intervention, what's optimal. That's something we have to have better research um, around. But what we are definitely seeing is that um, it, the, if we wait longer, patients don't do as well. So our philosophy at this point is generally, um, you know, maybe around the first Certainly not within the first days do we um, do we implement much treatment other than some activity modifications, some general instructions. But um, uh, I'll, I'll give you one the only caveat that that's the exception to that. However, um, at, at probably about a week's time, that's really um, when we start um, thinking about intervention, which is much sooner than we used to. We used to wait three weeks um, before we would consider referring to therapy very much. And we are much more aggressive now and we have much better outcomes with that. But the one caveat for immediate intervention, and I don't know how Dr. Scott feels about this, but I think that if somebody has signs or symptoms of BPPV, you need to initiate treatment immediately. Um, the other things can generally wait, but that's the one that, that we'll immediately have intervention with. And also cervical issues, we will start intervention, you know, immediately with that. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with you on those two caveats. Um, and, you know, the consensus statement says even, you know, if, if, if their symptoms go persist beyond, you know, 10 days, then they should be evaluated. But like, like we mentioned, there's a lot of good research out there that says, you know, perhaps you can start earlier than that. Why, why wait until those secondary effects occur? Um, intervene, intervene early, and it's been shown to be uh, fairly safe. Um, there was a recent study by a physical therapist, um, Renneker, um, who started vestibular rehab for individuals who had dizziness, I think fairly acutely within that first five to seven day window. And what they found, what she found was that individuals returned to play quicker when they started that intervention early in addressing it. Exactly. And the Schneider paper, which is, you know, kind of that, you know, one of those first really good studies looking at, um, you know, a randomized controlled trial with intervention and the intervention group definitely gets back to play quicker. So yeah. And I go think therapy. That shows, yeah. I think that really does that theme just shows throughout all the literature um, that if, if you treat the symptoms that they're presenting with in, in most cases, especially in the case with vestibular issues, if you, if you treat it in an evidence-based way, as, as much evidence as we have now, um, then they get better and they get better faster. You guys mentioned them, how different uh, each concussion can be. Are there certain clinical profiles that are being used and do any of them help predict whether somebody will recover faster or possibly have a prolonged recovery? Do you want to take that first, Dr. Scott, or do you want me to? Um, well, I guess I can, I can kind of say how we tend to manage um, 
uh, kind of the clinical clinical profiles and um, the physician on the team really kind of tries to be the the um, I imagine that the person that's bringing in the planes, right, the, who has the flags and, you know, you go this way, you go that way, um, in that we like to kind of keep it simple. Is it is it kind of a physiological concussion symptom um, from the metabolic changes from the actual damage? Is it more of a physical driver, like a vestibular ocular, um, or is it the neck? And under physiological, of course, we have mood, anxiety, migraines, that kind of thing. And really say, all right, if we, if we take all these drivers of concussion, which one can we effectively manage early that might, in fact, unwind a lot of other uh, negative prognostic factors? Um, I think for us, and the, in my opinion, some of the most difficult ones are the ones that have a lot of anxiety, depression, they have this feeling of they are not going to get better. And these are often people who have been through the medical system. I think those Mm -hmm. individuals need a little extra attention, a little extra time to get out of that. I call it the tumbleweed effect of, of what they've been told for the first you know, three, four months, however long they present for, and now what they're being told now by our by our site is that, you know, you can get better. You don't need to avoid all of this. And 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 those people who have kind of that anxiety overlay, it's like the it's like the triple P in vestibular rehab. You know, mm-hmm. we have to we have to address that component, the psychological aspect. And it's those individuals who just take a little bit longer. I don't know if you also see that. In your oh, practice. Absolutely. It's so interesting. You know, we're seeing the exact same thing is that if you can <laughs> identify, you know, mood issues and actually the earlier, the better you are at picking up on those because, you know, sometimes they're not as overt. Um, you, know, you have to be a really skilled clinician. You've got to look, you know, through multiple lenses to identify this, but um, that's, that that's huge. And uh, you guys, kind of treat it as an overlay we actually because of there's so much strong literature also in addition to what you and I see clinically all the time Mm -hmm. but there's just fabulous literature that just demonstrates over and over again that one of the biggest predictors of protracted recovery after concussion whether it's sport related non-sport related is the emergence of mood issues. So mm-hmm. um, when when there are anxieties, depressions, panic episodes, you know, worsening of pre-morbid issues, that's when you start to see this chronicity. So that we kind of actually treat that as its own potential area because some patients, just like you alluded to, um, Dr. Scott, is that, um, you know, sometimes at four months and what you're seeing is really this patient is, has a depression problem and really there's there's not much evidence that there's still concussion ongoing. It's really that, that they have this ongoing mood thing, but of course it can also overlap with a lot of other things. Um, the other, you know, big areas that we see that are, um, that are, that, that we kind of treat differently and individually are really related to what, again, studies have shown are predictors of outcomes. So another big cast class 
are the modern migraine because we know, again, there's some really good studies that show that if you have an emergence of, of migraines post-traumatically, that is a predictor for more, more lengthy recovery, more complicated recovery. And then similar to you, like we have a, a vestibular group, which, um, you know, again, we, there's also studies that have been shown, uh, the studies that are showing that patients that have vestibular issues are, are taking longer to get better as well as ocular. So we do separate those out a little bit um, just because of the treatment is different, but um, both of those have been shown to be related to, to longer outcome. Um, and then uh, we also think about just um, patients who are having mostly cervical presentations, very similar to, to your, um, your marking. So I think that regardless of, of how you um, conceptualize these groupings, it's, it's critical to figure out how to um, group patients somehow in like ways, because otherwise we're never going to be able to study treatment. Because if you treat all concussions the same or study treatment across all these different areas, you're never going to have any results. You're not going to know about medication. You're not going to know about therapies. You're not going to know about rest versus not rest. Because if, if we don't identify these, these heterogeneous groups and we treat it all homogeneously, we're, we're, we're going to keep um, you know, spinning our wheels as it relates to this. Thank you both. Those are very good points and um, things to look for as far as patients that we need to pay a little bit more attention to and those that may have a little bit of an easier time recovering. Um, Dr. Muka, you recently published a review on vestibular and ocular motor screening and concussion rehabilitation. I was wondering if you could just discuss um, the current state of the research and sort of what tools are out there that therapists can use to screen vestibular and ocular motor systems. Uh, sure. So, you know, I think what we at screening needs to to kind of try to over identify because a good screening tool is going to to um, give you um, to to identify more cases and then more your thorough evaluation is going to then weed out who really has problems. But when you're talking about vestibular issues, the things based on on the literature that that we need to make sure that we're identifying is benign positional vertigo, so we have to be able to screen for BPPV. We have to be able to screen for balance problems because we know that that's a vestibular system issue that's seen after concussion a lot. We know that patients that have um, uh, concussions have problems with their VOR response, so we have to have screens that look for that, as well as problems with um, Visual motion sensitivity is what we call it, but it's that central integration of vestibular information and visual information and kind of resolving those conflicts. So um, you have to be able to screen for those things. On the visual side, based on, again, literature that's from military as well as from non-military, we know that patients after concussion have pursuit problems, they have psychotic eye movement problems, they have convergence problems, accommodative problems, and then problems with ocular alignment or, or decompensation of ocular alignment issues. So with all that said, and we know that those are the big things that that are often out there in our concussion populations, there are a lot of tools that, that can help us with that. So on the balance side, um, if you're lucky enough, you could use computerized dynamic posturography, but most of us don't have the big platforms, so we use things like the 
the CATSIB, the Clinical Test of Sensory Interaction Imbalance, with a modified version, or if you work with athletes, you could use the best test. Um, to, of course, look for BPPV, you're going to do things like, you know, questions, even um, screening for it is, is just ask your questions about positional symptoms and use those DHI questions that are going to tell you about dizziness with getting out of bed or rolling in bed, um, lying down in bed. And, of course, your positional testings. But, you know, the other things, either you need to use some type of a screening instrument. That's why we developed the VOMS, because it's a, a quick, brief screen of some of those other areas that I spoke of. Or you'll need to do more detailed clinical testing, like dynamic visual acuity testing, head shake testing. Um, there's also the King-Divic test, which can look for psychotic eye movement um, impairment as well. But again, it's pretty, um, you know, you, you kind of have to piecemeal a few things together to get a, a thorough evaluation. So um, I think that all those tools are out there. Some of them have been looked at exclusively in concussion or developed exclusively. Some are borrowed from other vestibular um, literature or vestibular groups, um, but I think appropriately so. So I think it's, it's up to you what you use, but those are the things you've got to be able to look for, those areas that I spoke of first. I think, I, uh, Dr. Mika, I think you made some... I love the fact that everything you listed is all physical problems. So <laughs> I love that. Um, so the physical, I think that's important as the physical symptom screening tools are really rising to the surface. And I also really like that you pointed out that screenings are screenings. So they're just that. They're meant to kind of be all-inclusive and catch everything, even if it might not be a problem. And I, I just want to point out that screenings are screenings and not always are they the best tool to measure progress and rehab and, and, and make those kind of return to work, return to play decisions because they might not be sensitive enough to pick up on, um, uh, problems that are still still existing. Agreed. There's no perfect tool. Yeah. Um, the other thing is if you think about certain, um, certain things that we do. Um, uh, so as, as you, as we've talked about, sometimes patients after concussion um, are exhibiting a lot of anxiety. Um, so if you have, are using a tool that's very um, subjective and asks a lot of questions about symptoms, just like um, for those of you, you know, all the vestibular therapists out there, which I think a lot of you are, um, the DHI, you know, you, when you have anxious patients, they are, they're going to over-report, they overthink, they, they over, um, you know, they, they, they magnify their symptoms a bit, or they're, they're so, they're so vigilant about their symptoms that, that they really over-perceive them. And so when you have, measures that are that are that 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 are asking subjectively a lot of questions about symptoms um and patients that are anxious you might be getting a lot of false you know false <laughs> positive information okay. so you really need to pick and choose your measures appropriately you know for example i you know our group we 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 made up the vomms which we made it because it was a um there was there there wasn't good screening out there for people to use um 
who weren't necessarily vestibular therapists, who might be um, primary care physicians or frontline clinicians, athletic trainers, orthopedic therapists, patients or clinicians who really didn't have a good, strong vestibular background, but they needed to be able to look for these issues. So the VOMS is meant to just look at it in a very non-technical you know, technical way. However, it asks the patients to report their symptoms multiple times with these different tests. Well, that could be counterproductive when you have a patient that's a high symptom reporter. So kind of understanding a little bit about um, the strengths and weaknesses of all of these tools is, is pretty important. You know, I'm sure that you, you do use the best, Dr. Scott. Um, I use it sometimes, but my tool of choice for balance is probably the CAT-SIB, just because the best in a lot of patients is pretty hard and doesn't tell me for sure what's going on. So, yeah, the the the... The BESS, right? The, right, think, right. Not the BEST, the best, right. BESS. The, the BESS. So I n- never use that test um, because I know it's just, it doesn't seem to be sensitive enough to pick up um, or specific enough to pick up on the deficits that that I'm looking for. I need something a little more objective than that. But I also recognize that I think the best is, is good enough for a screen right. acutely, but it's not going to show, um, you know, even a week out, you could have an athlete who has positional vertigo. They could have um, balance problems, but they, they've practiced this best test because they know it's on the screen. Um, <laughs> you know, they might have visual problems, but the, the best test isn't going to catch any of those. So they might pass the screen, but that really doesn't give you a good indication of what what's happening with them right now and their what is their clinical presentation and and, right. and how are they going to recover from it. Right. It certainly doesn't tell you anything dynamic about what's what's right. going on when they move their head, right? <laughs> right, so. exactly. Exactly. And we all know as vestibular therapists, you have to actually move your head to stimulate that vestibular system. You gotta move. <laughs> Well, thank you both for sharing a lot of um, your research and what's currently out there. Wondering, is there any final recommendations you would have for outpatient clinics that are starting to build a concussion management program if they maybe are in the development process right now? Um, Start with Dr. Scott on this one. Um, So I think I get this question a lot. I think that the best thing to do is really educate yourself. Go If you can possibly go to a clinic that has a successful program or talk with a mentor or make a network of people who are doing concussion management from a physical therapy standpoint, and how are they doing it? How are they successful? Um, and, you know, be sure to, you know, don't make faulty promises to the individuals coming in, you know, make sure that you have a good referral team. Um, I think Dr. Muga and myself, we are really lucky in that we have this large, dynamic, interdisciplinary team that surrounds us. And I don't know about you, but mine's fairly close in locality to where I am. Um, but around the country, they don't they don't have that. It's you know, it's very difficult to find an optometrist who's going to pick out these these tiny discrete changes that are 
make a huge impact on somebody's physical function like uh, misalignments and, and decompensated phorias or, or, or nerve palsies or virgins issues. Most optometrists aren't going to pick up on this. So you need to find somebody in your, in your town that is kind of thinking the same way you are. Same with the physiatry, neuropsychology, um, vision, um, mental health providers, all of them that can kind of give the same consistent message to the patient. So developing a network and really just educating, educating yourself. And I think the last thing is not getting caught up in the, in the heretics of, of these faulty promises and, and sales tactics, you know, like selling helmet sensors with an app to have parents sit on the sideline and know when their kid got a concussion because of the helmet sensor. I mean, there's a lot of these fangled things out there, sales tactics that really aren't research proven. So I think just not, not promoting kind of the non-evidence-based hype, you know, and, and, and being forthcoming and not making faulty promises to your clientele. That's that's a great uh, a great point is that there's so much misinformation out there about concussion and even on <laughs> even on the flip side, um, you know so everybody wants to have concussion proof equipment, mouth guards, helmets, sensors, everything, and then you know you've seen it in all sports. And on the flip side, you also see a lot of misinformation about patients are worried you know, for their, or, or parents are worried for their children or patients are worried at their, their first concussion that they're going to have permanent brain damage um, from, from their concussion. And there's a lot of um, misinformation or at least um, there's a lot of fear about, uh, about um, CTE and, and, and things like that, that really, I think that we can do a lot to diffuse um, when when patients are really just sustaining like their first concussion or, you know, they really don't have any kind of a repetitive history. Um, I, I think that, that unfortunately concussion for so long was so under-recognized and so under-treated. And uh, now we've swung so far in the other direction that sometimes there's a lot of mania around it. And we have to um, make people understand that it, that we can treat it. It's very treatable. Um, we're not going to allow you to get injured while you're still recovering, but it's very treatable. We expect you to recover fully from this. And just like any other injury, if it's treated correctly, there's no reason that you will not get better from it. And I think that's the thing we need to instill. The other thing I was thinking is that, you know, Dr. Scott talked about kind of that multidisciplinary treatment and we are lucky um, I will fully acknowledge I have access to a lot of other disciplines but I do think that you do need to be realistic though um, if, if you really don't have access to at least some key other healthcare professionals you might want to question whether really you're the right you know place to be to be doing concussion management because as anybody that's ever worked in brain injury you do need to have the ability to look at multiple different areas um, to treat it effectively, and perhaps really, you know, it, if if there's not access, it, you sh you shouldn't do it. However, just know that it doesn't have to be in the same way. So, uh, I, I I think that um, as long as you have 
people that you can refer to that are in your region or area when you need to, when you've screened for problems and can identify them, and you have a good medication person that you can send somebody to, maybe they're not next door, but perhaps they're just in the area, or if you, you know, you have a, a, um, uh, a person that um, can, can treat and manage anxiety, a good, good therapist or a good psychiatrist. Or, but you do have to have at least some things and pieces in place. Otherwise, you know, there are just too many nuances to the injury. And then um, I think the last thing I'll say, and this is just my, this is my, um, what I always say, it's kind of my, my line is that if you um, want to manage concussions um, and you, uh, you need to make sure that you understand two areas and you you need to make sure that you um, even dive deeper into them. One we've already touched upon, which is um, understanding mood and anxiety issues, because it is very pervasive in this population and missing it, not understanding it and how it affects um, them and how they feel from their brain injury. Um, If you miss that and don't really manage that, you're you're not going to treat it well. And then the other is is understanding migraines because they're so prevalent after a concussion and migraines can take on a lot of different flavors and we could talk days about that. But um, migraines really come out after concussions too. So Again, depending on you know what your comfort level is with those things, or or your you might need to study up on those things to to do it. But if you do, it'll be well worth your time and energy. Great, thank and you I both so it. much for joining me today and for having this discussion and sharing the current state of research. Additionally, for both of you continuing to participate in research and to continue to advance the field of concussion management as we learn more about it and continue to treat these patients better. So thank you very much for joining me tonight. Well, thank you for having us. Right. It was a pleasure, Nikki. We, we enjoyed it. Great. And for our listeners out there, we'll have you stay tuned for new updates coming up in the future. Thank you, everybody. Good night. <laughs>